0: Andrew, it is July 5th, 2017, and are
1: you excited for Spider-Man? I'm pretty excited for Spider-Man, I'm not going to lie. The reviews seem good. That is uh, 12 of the 14 MCU movies with a certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) What are the two that didn't get it? Thor 2 and Incredible Hulk. And they're still in like the high 60s.
0: And Incredible Hulk is, you know, I mean... There's debate to be had whether or not that that really counts in the canon with the others.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, so I'm pretty excited. I'm going to see this weekend. You're going to see it this weekend.
0: I'm going to do my best. Um, I think I have some time on Sunday when I can uh, sneak away without being a deadbeat dad. So um, we'll see. I'm going to try to make it happen. Uh, I'm I'm actually kind of psyched for this one.
1: Excellent. We should have a uh, extra special episode coming about Spider Man.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: I'll say no more, all
0: right, so this is part two of our <laughs> two part series on rebuilding uh the name of the wind so in episode twenty three which you should probably listen to before you listen to this episode, just to kind of get a sense for what we're trying to accomplish and why I've taken it all myself to do this stupid thing um. But so in in that episode, we covered all of the things that need to be fixed about The Name of the Wind, the novel, and also more or less its sequel, basically The Kingkiller Chronicles, although we're going to focus in on the story of, you know, it's in Name of the Wind, um, all the things that are wrong with the series and the general ways that we think we can improve on it, how we would start to rebuild it, and again – you should really listen to that before you listen to this, so take your time. Um, but this week, we're gonna get into the story. and I'm going to walk us through my pitch for a revised plot line for Name of the Wind that I think pays off on what the book kind of promises us and at the same time hopefully tells more of a compelling story um, that kind of has a beginning, middle, and end, <laughs> unlike the other book, which is just kind of all middle. Um, so should we just dive right in? Let's do it. All right. So when we first meet our hero Quoth, he is a an edema roo, which is this band of traveling entertainers, essentially. And he is college age. And so he has been his entire life training to be a performer. Uh and you know, in all of the kind of, you know, medievally entertainment. So singing, storytelling, stage magic, acting, stage craft, all the things you would need to be, to be a competent traveling performer. Um, and he's, he's really good at it. It's n- it's not just that he's been, you know, raised in this culture that that's all they do, but he's also fairly talented as a performer, just as himself. um, you know, like we talked about in the last episode, like imagine like one of these Mickey Mouse Club kids or one of these like Disney stars that came up in the Disney like t- TV system. So now they're just really, really competent at every kind of like performance and you're kind of jealous of them and they're super duper confident, but maybe they're also a little bit kind of full of themselves and actory. Um, You can kind of tell that even though they've got a lot of the skills, like there's not a lot of depth of experience there, but maybe sometimes they kind of talk all actory and a little bit, you know, they like to communicate with a lot of wisdom and depth and um, maybe a little full of themselves. But what would you expect from somebody who, you know, they live on applause? So they're going to be a little bit infl- of inflated ego. So our boy Kvothe, he is competent, but he doesn't love the life of the kind of traveling entertainer. Um, you know, he's, he's in his late teens, early twenties, and he, he wants what, you know, most people that age want. They want to get out. They want to make a name for themselves, still feeling a little rebellious, you know, wanting to, you know, kind of break away from the family and the pack. Um, and you know, some of that overconfidence, some of that pride is coming out a little bit too, because, you know, he kind of resents that whenever they leave a town, you know, whenever they pack up their show and leave. Nobody's going to remember his name. They're going to remember the Adima Roo and they're going to, uh, they remember the great play they saw and the wonderful songs, but they're not going to remember his name. They probably didn't even know his name. And, you know, like, you know, somebody who's in their late teens, early twenties and feels very sure of themselves. He kind of resents that he kind of wants something a little more. Um, he wants some recognition. He wants and, you know, a little bit he wants a little bit of purpose too because he kind of sees that, you know, traveling around and just singing songs, putting on plays for people. You know, he enjoys entertaining people. That's a part of his culture, and he was raised to value that, but he's not really leaving a mark on anything, and he's kind of craving something more. You'll notice I've left some things out here that <laughs> Rolf has included in the original. Uh, I've made both older. I've gotten rid of his, like, wizard teacher so that he's just – At this point in the story, he is just a really good performer who's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. Um, Got it. And to hew a little bit more closely to the original, um, I think the original setup for how we encounter the Chandrian is really interesting. Um, So his father is writing an epic song or a play or what have you. He's writing a story about the Chandrian and he's getting about halfway through, and then all of a sudden the Chandrians show up and massacre the entire troop because apparently the Chandrians do not like being spoken about when it you know when it starts to get a little too accurate or a little too close to home. They show up and clamp that thing down. Now, through some you know contrivance, Quoth is not among those who are murdered, but when he happens upon the scene, um, he certainly encounters them and. Um, and knows that they are real. It's, you know, it's not some trick like, oh, maybe it was bandits. No, he knows that these are the actual magical demons, the Chandrian. And the reason they leave him alive is because essentially, you know, they think it's kind of good for them to um let the world know that they are real and they are not to be flexed with. Um, so he's kind of been put out, he's been spared in order to um not necessarily tell their story in the kind of factual factual way that his dad was, but just as a warning to others of, Hey, maybe don't go around telling, telling uh, too many stories about the Chandrian. So, you know, he wanted to get out of the, the life of the Maru, but, but not like this. Um, and I don't want to use this, um, event in his life to turn him into some weird, like have that survivalism chapter or series of chapters that was in the original book. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would he have those skills? Wilderness survival? it, It, you know, it's a challenging thing. Um, but it does give his life some purpose. This kind of steals his resolve that he wanted purpose to his life. Well, now he's got it. He's got revenge. He wants to seek out the people that murdered his family, his entire troop, um, and make sure that something like this doesn't happen to anyone else. Um, and there's another thing that I want to include here um, because I think it makes sense and I think it gets rid of a really kind of insulting plot point from the original book is that um, essentially when he walks away from the massacre, he's rich (laughs) because why would the Chandrian take all of the gold and valuables from the Ademaru troop? They're like magical uh, fairy demons. They don't need your stupid coins. So – he has the presence of mind after all this to collect what valuables he can to kind of sustain him on as much of his quest as possible. So he's got, you know, an entertainment troops worth of money to his name now. Um, but this isn't something that he necessarily feels great about. It's just something that he feels is a necessary step in his kind of overall goal. Um, and I think you can have lots of, you know, good character moments as he wrestles with this idea of like picking over the corpses of his family and friends to find the money that he's going to need to avenge their deaths. Um, so he knows that finding information about the Chandrian is going to be hard because clearly they go out of their way to wipe out anything that's a little too accurate or a little too robust. But he also knows that the only way he's going to find them and get his revenge is to find more information. And, you know, he gets around, they travel. He knows that the best place for him to find um, information about the Chandrian is at the archives of the university in Emre. Um, So that's where he has to go. He figures he's got enough money for tuition. He just needs to get there and t- do whatever he has to do to get into those archives and learn what he can about the Chandrian. Um, because right now, all he knows is that they're totally real and some of the myths about them are a little bit true, Because, you know, again, he's from this pack of entertainers. They know all the stories. That's part of what they do. They tell the stories. And some of the, you know, he noticed some of the things from the uh, the stories that he knows, like, oh, flames turn blue when they're around and metal rusts. He totally saw that when he was with them. So he puts it all together. He's like, well, some of what we know about them is true, which means that there's probably enough information out there. I just need to find it. I just need to put the pieces together so that I can figure out how to avenge my family. So as he's traveling to the university, and that basically means finding a wagon and paying a fare, um, I don't want to spend too much time with like long traveling chapters and getting into details of, and then he hitched a ride on this wagon and told a funny story to this traveling farmer. It's like, no, he, he makes his way there. This is a fairly advanced culture. There are roads, there are wagons, there is trade between settlements. It's going to be easy enough for him to get there. But we're also dealing with medieval modes of transportation. So he's only going to be able to travel maybe 30, 40 miles a day. So he's probably going to be on the road for a good two weeks. He's got some time to himself, some time to think. Um, And he decides that he's done being an Edima Rue. All that stuff from his past about entertaining and singing and acting and all that stuff. Whenever he thinks about that stuff, it reminds him of this horrible trauma. And... He also knows that it might hurt his chances a little bit at the university. If he shows up saying, I want to study at the university. I want to learn all of your science and magic. Oh, by the way, I'm I'm super good at loot and I'm an actor. And that's all the things he has No, I'm going to go. And I, I just, I don't want people to know about this part of my life. I don't want them asking a lot of questions about how I got here. I'm not going to know how to answer those questions. You know, I definitely don't want to say to everyone I meet, so my, hey, you know, those like. Bedtime story demons that you've probably heard about. Yeah, they murdered everybody I know. And uh, so now I'm just trying to get away. I mean, that's a great story to tell if you want people to think that you murdered your entire family. <laughs> like, oh, no, They were murdered. They were murdered by fictional demons, which are totally true. Believe me, I know what I saw them. Um, so he's just suppressing that part of himself. Um, he's telling himself that it's all shallow and pointless. It's just stories and acting and songs. What really matters are real facts and real information, because those are the things that you need to make a difference in the world. Um, so eventually he arrives at the university. Um, and I think in, 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 in our version, the university will be kind of a lot like, uh, the way that it is in Rothfuss's where it's essentially wizard school, um, and most science and medicine is linked to magic. Because why wouldn't it be? If you live in a world where magic exists, it's kind of gonna be the foundation for a lot of your, you know, sciences. Um, in the way that, you know, physics and chemistry is the basis of a lot of our medicine and technology. Um, but I, I think that understanding the hierarchy of um classes and the rules of the university, he's gonna learn those at the outset. Because one of the things that annoyed me the most about um, the original books was that Quoth kept getting into trouble for rules that no one ever told him about. (laughs) Like the kind of rules that get you publicly flogged. Like, really? Nobody told, like, there was no orientation day where they told you like, hey, here are the things that you're not supposed to do because you'll get in trouble. Because that's, I mean, I went to college and we had like a week of that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Here are all the things you totally can't do. These are the things that are going to get you a warning. These are the things that are going to get you suspended. These are the things that are going to get you kicked out of school. Don't do these things. You know, they even had, they went so far as to have like, you know, easy things to remember. Like, you know, when they were talking about like, you know, hanky panky in the dorms, for me, they were like, only, there can only ever be two feet perched shower stall. Like, ah, got it. Got it. That's easy to remember. It's clear what you mean. I can't come up with weird, silly ways around that. So. The fact that in the original Quoth goes to school, he's paying a tuition, but nobody bothers to give him the orientation of like, hey, by the way, not allowed to have um lit uh fires in the um in the archives. Don't you think that would even be like on a sign on the wall? Like that's an important rule. It would have signs all over the place about that. Just in case somebody didn't get the lecture or forgot, you'd have signs, but it's they just spring these rules on him because it's convenient to the plot. Um and Perfect Quoth would never break a rule that he knew about. So we're gonna do some establishing of what it is. This is a great time to do exposition because it's being given to our main character. He can. We can have a chapter that is literally wizard college uh, orientation. And we can understand the rules and the weird ranking system, which isn't gonna matter in our version. But So he gets there and he feels like, look, I'm a smart guy. I'm competent. I know what I'm doing. I'm charming because I'm an actor, I've been doing this forever, I know how to get people on my side, I'm going to be okay at this. um, Because I have to be a student if I want access to the archives, and I'm not going to do some stupid thing like in the original where, like, you have to be a certain level of student before they let you into the archives. Like, What is that? You're paying your tuition? You get the library. Um, The thing that's going to take some time is that it's going to be hard to find the information he wants. But, so he gets there, and he thinks he can handle it. He has some trouble at the start with sympathy, which is kind of the basic magic. I don't like the idea in the original that like you can kind of take all of the different courses simultaneously. That seems a little strange. I, I I like the idea that you start with sympathy as kind of the basic structure of magic in this world. And the other things are kind of built on top of it. And that lets us, as we're going along the educational journey with him, kind of move from level to level and get a sense of the magic system. and sympathy is, it's, its you know, this is physics 101 if you're a physics major. And the problem is, is that Quoth is miserable at it. He can't get a single thing right about sympathy. Um, He's not even the most basic little kind of tricks. Um, and this is gonna cause a real crisis for him. Not only because, you know, it sucks to fail at something over and over again and not be able to grasp it and not be able to do the thing, especially when, you know, his whole life he's been talented and competent and people have been clapping for him and telling him what a great singer he is. And all of a sudden there's this thing and he has, he just cannot get his arms around it whatsoever. So there's the personal disappointment of, boy, I'm not as clever as I thought, but also the lingering threat of, holy shit, if I don't pass this course, I'm going to fail out. And that means no more archives. So my little side project of finding the Chandrian isn't going to work. So here we're building the we'll bu- we're building the dramatic tension of um how is he going to get through this? Not with well he's got 3 talents and 6 jots, but what he really needs is 4 talents and 5 jots. It's he's bad at magic and there's a test coming up and no matter what he does he just can't get it. Um so we're coming up to test time. And he has to perform some basic sympathy task in order to, you know, essentially stay at school. (laughs) Um, So he has to make a a pretty big compromise for him. It's an emotional compromise because it's going to ask him to call on things from his old life that he's been trying to forget. But it's also an ethical compromise because he's going to have to be deceitful in order to uh, continue on his goal. So what he's going to do is he's going to call on all those skills from his former life as a performer to essentially fake his way through his magic exam. He knows how to do stage magic. He knows how to devise a trick that can make it look to just about everyone that he actually accomplished this silly little sympathy task of lighting a candle from across the room or what have you. Um, So he, he devises the trick. He rehearses uh, all the while kind of hating himself for having to do this, but knowing it's what he has to do to keep going. And it works. He, he gets, he, he continues through magic school for a while, uh, not at, you know, doing Merlin magic, but doing Pen and Teller magic. And he's, you know, he's doing a pretty good job of fooling people and just doing well enough to not get expelled. Um, And he's able to continue his quests in the archives. So, so you know, during the day he's at school and he's trying to figure out how he's gonna trick people into thinking he could actually do magic. And at night, he's down in the archives just searching and searching and searching for information on the Chandrian. But he also knows that, look, I can only keep this straight up for so long. I mean, there are legitimate wizards here. At some point, they're going to realize that I'm faking it. Or at some point, I'm just going to forget a trick, and I'm going to drop a card, or I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to palm the coin correctly, and people are going to realize I've been faking it, and boy, then won't I be in trouble. So the clock is ticking. Um, and things are getting more stressful because he's having to devise more and more complex tricks in order to pass more and more complex exams. Um, but now he's onto a clue throughout his whole time in Imray, he's been hearing about this legend that, um, so once the city of Imre was the fortress of some kind of wizard king, some evil wizard king back in the, in the dark mysteries of time, um, and However we describe him, there's going to be some little hints in there that sound maybe a little Chandrian-like. Like, Like, was this guy – were these myths just mixed together? Or was this guy maybe a Chandrian or became a Chandrian or something? There's some kind of connection. Um, So – but the legend is that – so there was this wizard king. And at one point, um, he was defeated by the good people. Um, And the texts – none of the legends ever really say that he died. Some say he was chased away. Some say he vanished in a puff of smoke, whatever. But it's kind of interesting and Quoth notices that there's nobody ever says like, oh, and then the, the noble king rode in and, and slew the wizard. Um, but he was chased away. But and then so the, the good guys, they, they tore down his castle. But there was one part of the castle that nothing they could do. They couldn't destroy this one room, this one locked room. Um, they used everything they could. They could. And they, nothing could could level this thing. They tried burning it down. They tried hitting it with hammers. I don't know what you do, but they tried to destroy this thing and they couldn't do it um, because it was this magical mystery room. They couldn't open the door. They couldn't break it down. Nothing. They couldn't dig underneath it. So they just built the city on top of and around this thing. So and there's all kinds of legends all over town that such and such a hill is extra tall because it's on top of this magical room or such and such a building has a weird shape because it's part of the, you know, it's built on top of that old room or there's this park where no trees grow. And maybe it's because it's on top of that evil wizard room. Um, So Kvoth, due to some of his research in the archives and just what he's hearing from people, he knows how folklore works. He can kind of look at the clues and he thinks, I think there's something to this. I think this secret wizard vault that is somewhere in the city, I think that's real. So he says, it's real, it might have something to do with the Chandrian, I'm gonna find this thing before I get, before I fail out of school. So he goes and he does his research and he asks around town and he listens to songs and stories and he decodes them and he eventually figures out where this secret ancient wizard vault is. And it's built, it, the, the university itself is built on top of it. Now I know that's convenient <laughs> because we don't have to introduce another location, but, and the reason for that is so when this thing um, this, this magical vault that probably contains something super cool uh, because it's protected by all this magic um, and also is impossible to destroy or open, that draws scholars from all around the country. So they come to this thing in the center of this, you know, uh, uh, of these ruins and they set up shop to study it. And s- some of them set up like permanent research facilities around this weird door. And then... Permanent settlements, you know, pop up to support those research facilities. You know, uh, wizards who want to understand this thing, they've got to eat. So bars open up. So eventually a town and a university builds around this thing. So he's now he's navigating through the university. He's finding secret passageways. He's, you know, looking at, at strange doors and um, he finally makes his, he, but as he's researching, he realizes like, why aren't people still talking about this and why would it be? buried and hidden in the university. And he realizes that maybe some of the materials that he's able to find on it, they almost look like they've been maybe redacted or changed or censored. Like at some point, people decided, we don't talk about the magic door anymore. So he's he's navigating the hallways. He's navigating the passageways. He's going deeper and deeper into the university through different kind of strata of history and architecture. And eventually he finds the mysterious door, um, which we're familiar with with from the other books. Um, But of course, the mysterious door is locked because all mysterious doors are locked. Um, And that's part of the legend. Like, it's this door that no one can open. Um, But it's real. He's confirmed that this thing, that this thing that was just a legend, just some myth about the town, that, oh, somewhere there's a secret buried treasure that no one can open, which, you know, every stupid medieval town has one of those. But this, this is actually real, and he actually found it. So this is a big... Climax moment for him because his theory that maybe there's something to these myths and legends. And if I just try hard enough, I can find it. It's true. He found this. Um, now he just has to figure out how to open it, which you know, centuries and generations of scholars weren't able to do. Uh the next day, he totally bombs a test. Not only does he fail, but he's been so focused on finding this stupid door that he totally fucks up and drops his trick in front of everyone. So not only did he fail a test. But also now, um, the, the, the wizard professors know that not only is, does he not have the skills to, to hack it in the university, but he, uh, he's been lying to everyone the whole time. So they're like, this is dude, you're not even failing out. You are expelled. This is, I mean, this is like, you didn't just fail the test. You plagiarized your paper. You're out of here. Um, so that he was so close to his goal. He was so ready to go. Uh, and now it's all been snatched away from him. And then just as they're escorting him out the door, we have that scene that essentially comes at the end of the original name of the wind where he somehow is able to actually call the name of the wind out of the blue has no idea how he did it, but he's just this guy who couldn't even get the basic most thing of sympathy, right? And all of a sudden he knows how to do naming, which would be like, So I don't want to set up that naming is like the best kind of magic. It's just a different kind of magic. Just like quantum physics is not the best kind of physics. It's just a certain kind of physics. But it also is really challenging for a lot of people because quantum physics requires a kind of mindset that doesn't always work. And that's the way naming works in this world, is that naming is all about intuition and feeling and emotion, whereas all the other stuff is all logic and math and relationships. Um, But for some reason that this guy who was trained as an artist and a performer and a storyteller, his brain is somehow a little bit more able to tap into this intuitive, touchy feely stuff. Now, all of a sudden, look, hey, all that like training, that art training and that folklore training that you spent most of your life on so far and you would kind of dismissed as you know, stupid stuff that has no impact on the world all of a sudden that has tuned your brain in to the ability to, you know, engage in this kind of super advanced magic. So naturally all of the professors are like, holy shit, how are you doing this? It would be like a kid, you know, showing up who can barely add. Now, all of a sudden he's, you know, he's doing wave function calculations all of a sudden. They're like, what are you doing? This is amazing. You broke the rules, but you got to stick around because this is, this is fascinating. We want to know more about you. So it doesn't make him the greatest wizard. It's just that he's got this weird quirk that lets him do some magic that normal people really, really struggle with. But it also buys him another term at the university, so he can continue his research. So I think we should take a break there, talk a little bit about a, a little bit about news, and then uh, we'll come back and uh, and continue on.
1: Yes. <laughs> This has been a really easy episode for you so far. <laughs> I feel like I'm having a bedtime story right in me. It's kind of nice, I'm relaxed, <laughs> enjoying it. I can see it all happening in my head. Oh, I like it. the sound of that. But I've got some complaints. We'll get there. Okay. All right. So, Greg, since every movie company is going all in on shared universes, I guess it was only a matter of time until a franchise that I feel. From our conversation that is near and dear to your heart is being attacked, and that is James Bond. What is the podcast equivalent of a spit take? Uh, I don't know what a spit take is, so I can't tell you. Oh, it's
0: like in television where you know somebody gets startling news and they spit out whatever they were drinking in a oh. big, clownish fashion. Oh, or maybe uh-huh. it's not a spit take. Maybe it is one of those like epic Liz Lemon eye rolls that I need to do right here. Okay. So just okay. imagine what that sounds like, kind of a... <laughs> yeah, that was my eyes. Gross. Uh yeah, this is dumb as hell. I mean I mean, first of all, the whole shared universe thing has only been proven to work once so far <laughs> in 20 years of people trying it. Um and that's with the Marvel movies. Now, and again, this was just some little offhand comment that one of the producers made like at in a conversation about something else. So I mean, take this with a grain of salt, but I mean, also what movie producer doesn't want to turn their franchise into a shared universe at this stage in, you know, in, in Hollywood history. So I should also point out that this is not the f- first time that they have, um, thought about this. Um, if yeah, I'm going to say, if you remember, but I know you don't, uh, the, I believe the last Pierce Brosnan A Bond movie, Die Another Day, had Halle Berry as a character named Jinx, kind of another female – a female super spy. Mm -hmm. And even then, there was a lot of talk that she was going – that they had planned all along that this character, she was going to have a spinoff movie. This would be a first in James Bond history. There had never been a spinoff unless you count Never Say Never Again, which was kind of a weirdly unauthorized – James Bond movie where uh, it was after Sean Connery left the series and Roger Moore came in and then Roger and then Sean Connery did like one more movie, you know, kind of an unauthorized James Bond movie. It's a, one of those weird, uh, kind of footnotes, but yeah, this would be the first, It would have been the first spinoff. And at the time people were all about it because it was kind of this neat idea of like, oh, finally there's a, a Bond girl who, and, uh, it's such a gross term, mm-hmm. Um, who is like, oh, she's like his match. You know, she's, she's, she's her own competent super spy. She's not just some sex object or femme fatale and that movie never materialized. So, but I just, I don't want them to do this. I really don't. I mean, one of the greatest things about James Bond movies is that they are so self-contained and that you just, you just watch it and you know, you're going to see the cool stuff you want to see and you don't need to worry about um, ah, geez. Well, I didn't watch the last one. So am I am I gonna be able to make sense of this one? And I know there's a character that was in the sequel to the other one that's gonna be in this one. Am I gonna get it? And you know, that kind of that all that baggage that hangs on you from the Marvel movies of like, am I gonna understand all the jokes and references if I don't see every single one of these stupid things? Um, that's great. That's one of the great things about James Bond is that it's this ongoing series that each new um each new episode is all is like entirely self-contained. And in fact, in the most recent one, Inspector, they tried to tie the other Daniel Craig movies together a little bit by doing this dumb retcon of that the Blofeld character was behind the events of the first two movies, but not in a way that was like, you know, kind of a sixth sense twist of like, oh now I gotta go back and watch him again and see. It's like, no, it's just you just decided that for this movie that he was gonna be the mastermind. And uh it doesn't really work and I just hope they don't do this. Just make good James Bond movies, please. Just do what you do. It you make a lot of money on these things. Don't ruin this for me.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask, I wasn't sure if the new ones if they were a little more sequential or they had some sort of continuity to them.
0: They have more than the pre Daniel Craig James Bond. They they you know, they reference events from the previous thing. Um but not in a way that like not in the way that like Civil War references the other Marvel movies, you know. Right. They are much more they are still pretty self-contained, um, and episodic and, and you know, not really not terribly serial.
1: Yeah, I mean this is something for me that I don't think there I don't think there's room for a James Bond shared universe shared yeah, shared universe. I think there's room for for me, what I always I did the complete opposite, and this is just my personality. I was like, what about the stuff from the last movie? God darn it, like, so I would like more of, like, a sequential approach, but I also know that for me, on the same ha- same hand, I'm like, well, on the other hand, I'm like, well, there's a lot of people who don't like that, like you, and this is their thing, they're, they can have this thing, I don't need this thing, I don't need it, I don't, like, never really hooked me, uh, I never really got it, because it's just like, okay, so they're action movies, I get it, but they're mm-hmm. not really, like, there's a lot of other action movies that I like, and it's kind of, mm-hmm. I never really, I never really, I don't know, wasn't for me. So I'm going to, I'm going to defer and be like, fuck this because <laughs> on yeah, my behalf, on your behalf. And I'm everyone, Thank you. everyone like you. <laughs> Thank you.
0: If there is one thing, the, um, I, I believe that the, the broccoli family who, own, that's who they are. That is it own, spelled broccoli? It is. Um, wow. I, I have nothing to back this up, but my dad once told me that, uh, they are also the, they're called broccoli because their family was the one who first like you know, kind of like invented broccoli as a, you know, uh, that sounds like a dad line. story. Yeah, I might be, very well might be, uh, but the broccoli family who owns the rights to James Bond as a, uh, film character, they are pretty careful with, um, with the franchise. Um, so one has to hope that, uh, cooler heads prevail here.
1: Hmm. We'll see, I guess. I mean, I, I, I kind of see this as one of those things. Like, so it's kind of offhand comment. I kind of see it just not materializing and sort of just then just, you know, it's a, it's a steady thing, safe bet. Just keep doing what you've been doing. Yeah. Uh, I guess until, you know, this iteration of James Bond goes off the rails inevitably. And then they start again with somebody else. Yeah. Uh,
0: who, who won't be Idris Elba because seriously, that's, I mean, I think he would be perfect. Um, and you know, people have been like, the fan community has been like petitioning like, yeah, no, he should be the next James Bond. It's Idris Elba. There's no one better to be the next James Bond. You've got to do it this way, um, which means that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to be. It's not going to be him. I, I could stand one more Daniel Craig movie. I wouldn't want the last, his last one to be Spectre. That one wasn't good. Got he you. should go out with something better.
1: I've only seen Casino Royale, which I really liked.
0: Oh, you got to see Skyfall. Oh. Skyfall
1: is even better than uh, Casino Royale. Yeah? Yeah. All right. Good to know. I'd like to rewatch the Casino Royale, actually. That's a good one. So, in other news, speaking of shared universes.
0: And and weird continuity.
1: Yeah. So, we're getting, once again, some more information. I thought we every week about, eh, I guess, the time, of, <laughs> the time of the year, about <laughs> Spider-Man. Uh, and so, there's been a couple of things here. So, they're uh, so saying that it's being, you know, Homecoming is being called... Um, well, no, the sequel to Homecoming. Sorry, the sequel to Homecoming is being called the Civil War of the Next Avengers phase. As well about that, the sequel to Homecoming is allegedly going to take place minutes after the last, the second yes. Infinity, Avengers 4, the second Infinity War movie, whatever we're calling it at this point, the untitled Avengers 4, uh, minutes after that. Uh, on top of that, they're saying <laughs> that they are viewing this as a five arc, five movie arc for a character of Peter Parker. I mean, we, we know we're getting more of him after this, but they're saying they're viewing from his debut in civil war to the sequel to homecoming as sort of one coherent arc. And then on top of that, you want to explain the con the timeline here? Yeah. So this is,
0: so we know that when, um, Peter Parker shows up in civil war, he's in his sophomore year. That's apparently mentioned. And, um, and we also know that, um, homecoming takes place in his sophomore year of, um, of high school. So essentially right after civil war, um, you know, he basically, it seems like he's going to come back from that big airport fight in civil war and go back to class on Monday. And then our movie, you know, homecoming is going to pick up for the most part. And then, so the next Spider-Man movie, the sequel to homecoming, which we are calling prom, uh, takes place in his junior year in high school. So that means that both infinity war movies essentially happen on summer vacation between (laughs) these two other movies, um, which is on one hand, that's kind of like, ah, that's kind of a footnote, but it's also like, I mean, before they were playing a little bit fast and loose with how much time would happen between each movie. And it didn't really yeah. matter so much.
1: Yeah. It was roughly like they, they try to keep it besides Guardians of the galaxy. They try to keep it roughly the time that passed between the movies came out was right. like what they kind of tried to do.
0: But now we're getting to that phase where it's like, these guys are seemingly getting into, like, world-saving brawls every couple of months. And then – so and I don't have a problem with them doing the idea of, like, Spider-Man, you know, going back to high school and kind of taking the Harry Potter route, which is almost like each installment is, like, a different year of school. I'm like, that's fine. Okay, sure. Um, but that, you know, we're getting into, like, it's going to be a rough year for Captain America. <laughs> you know, before it seemed like, okay, so he's, like, Captain America – you know, all the time. And then like every couple of years he gets into something really big. And I guess the rest of the time he's just like, I don't know, thwarting bank robberies or something. (laughs) Um, but this is, you know, this is going to get really interesting. And like, are we going to get into a situation like, so like in breaking bad, where when breaking bad season one took place, you know, in like 2005 or 2006, whenever the show started. Um, but then the subsequent seasons were like happening in real time. So it like the show was like still in, 2005 2006 what have you is that what's going to happen with these new movies we're like all right no so it's like 2017 peter parker is a junior which means next year and then all of a sudden it's you know still 2017 but the movie i'm watching is in 2021 and i don't know it's going to be weird and interesting that now they're like using peter parker's progress through school as like the time marker for the rest of the franchise
1: yeah i mean i i think that you know, so like, let's say he. Let's say, let's say Civil War happened like pretty soon at the start of the school year for him. In I don't know if they gave what time of year it was, but uh, you know, for like Civil War stuff happened at the beginning of his sophomore year. This movie is taking place towards the end of his sophomore year, and then Infinity War stuff happens, which I guess it makes sense it would happen in sort of a condensed timeline. Although the movies in between, it's gonna be interesting to see what that looks like. Which is Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there another one? I don't between, think so. Between, yeah, I don't know. I'll have to look up then. But, so, okay, so, you know, that's a little bit of time and, and you know, maybe maybe six months between those movies. Okay. Uh, a little less, maybe. So then, yeah, it's so, you know, we're talking maybe it's uh, eight, nine, ten months since Civil War happened before Infinity War happens, which, yeah, it seems like a little tight. But one thing that I'm interested about even more, because I like the Harry Potter example, because... You know, Harry Potter starts off like, oh, it's year one. Oh, it's year two. Oh, it's year three. And it still goes into your cycle. But, like, post year four, they're not really in school all that much. I mean, like, they they are, I guess, in five. See me post five. We'll say post five. Like, after that, they're just kind of off doing, like, the book seven. They're not in school at all. You know what I mean? So, like, I wonder. Plus, like, Infinity War and its sequel are going to be a big fucking deal for Earth and (laughs) and perhaps the entire universe. So, like. For him to start school, like it's gonna be. I wonder if it's like, did they say it's gonna take place maybe before his junior year? If it's gonna start minutes after, I don't know. It's like, I wonder the timeline's gonna be interesting here. But yeah, I do see like this is where, as you start trying to build something, it gets a little messy. Yeah.
0: Well, and apparently, there's already some plot holes and questions around um, some existing timelines, apparently, don't work out based on what they're establishing now, which is whatever. It's fine. I'm not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think as long as. The only way it'll get confusing is they just can't have similarly related, like, closely related character characters' movies happening, like, before or after in, like, weird ways. Like, as long as they're roughly chronological, I don't think the distance between or how often, whatever, is fine. But, like, I mean, because the fact that, Gar- that Guardians 2 takes place in the past, like, chronologically in the past compared to where we're at now with the rest of the MCU is okay because it's so yeah. far removed, doesn't matter. And you can build in time then for when they show up in Infinity War. Fine. But if you start having like Captain America 8 technically takes place, you know, before Iron Man 10, like then it's going to get real confusing. Then, right. we're in, then we're into like normal comic level mess where I'm like, what's the fucking reading order? Just like go on a website, go on a well, form, find it, you know.
0: And you can start to run into that problem of like the Simpsons timeline where, all right, so they don't age. I'm still seeing a Christmas episode every year. So time is clearly passing. <laughs> like they have a Christmas every year, but nobody's getting older. So it's, they, you know, so, okay. So I see Peter Parker going through these years of high school, but then the other characters don't seem to acknowledge the passage of time or they're acknowledging a different passage of time. So they'll work it out, whatever. They're going to have to hit the reset button pretty soon anyway.
1: Yeah. I mean, you keep saying that I'm, I'm, I'm sure what they're going to do, but uh, we will, we will see. But the fact that, so, I mean, I, I do think it is weird. Cause like, so far, we know nothing of Phase Four.
0: The, the, the only well, and the only movie that's been announced is whatever comes after Spider-Man: Homecoming.
1: Yeah, and that just be another one after that too. So we know we, we know we have at least two Spider-Man movies. So we know at least he's around. But we also we mentioned last week we don't really know who's going to be left. Right. We don't know what the state of the universe is going to be if it's been altered in some way. And we also don't really know like I mean they and they said we're not going to hear anything about Phase Four until I mean I think he said till then both Avengers movies are done, but that doesn't they're not going to not tell us what movies are coming out the next year. Like no marketing person can be like, yeah, that's not happening. Like, well, yeah.
0: And they're going to have to start casting people and making, announcements. Right. I, I think the reason for that is that I still think they don't know what characters they're going to have at the end of, of this movie. Um, and I think that part of it is, um, they might not want to spoil, um, something like, um, making an announcement now that says, oh, there's going to be a new movie and it's going to be iron heart, which means mm-hmm. that there's going to be a, a iron man. Isn't going to be in the picture anymore, probably which might spoil some plot points of the infinity war movies. They probably won't want to do that quite yet. Cause they want to keep some things in the dark about what exactly is going to happen. But yeah, yeah. at some point they're going to have to start making casting announcements and starting to build hype. I mean, they announced, I mean, I remember it was like five comic cons ago that, they put up
1: that big PowerPoint slide with like, here's the next forty
0: movies we're putting out. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know. And like, you're like, oh man, 2019 that's so far away, and it's like, well, it's not so far anymore. Um, I, I think it's the latter. I think they know who is going to be around, who's not going to be around, because since they're filming both movies at the same time, I don't think that they would do that without having it sketched out. Um, true. But especially all the all the, all the characters, actor schedule, all that kind of stuff. So I think they probably know. I think they're probably just trying to keep it as close to the chest as possible. So, but anyway, the last thing that, and I, I'm not, I can't really speak much to this, but uh, there was some sort of close encounters of the third kind announcement today, like teaser and no one knows if it's a sequel or a reboot or just the re-release in theaters. And I've never seen this movie, so I can't really comment. Really? I know. I know. I, I'm actually pretty bad with my like old school sci-fi movies. I, I tried I, to watch 2001: A Space Odyssey once and like fell. I was like ten, fell asleep like oh, three times. So. Yeah, no, it's
0: that's a challenging film. <laughs> uh, I would I would recommend reading the the book rather than uh, no. I recommend the movie too, but more as a um, you know kind of film studies thing. I don't know. I I really hope this isn't a remake. I really hope not. I mean, I, th- that movie is 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 a classic for a reason. I think it still holds up today. It's got some great performances in it. Um, it's got a great style. I mean, please just, yeah, you know what? It would be great. A remastered theatrical release would be fantastic. Um, but please don't make this, please, please don't remake this movie. Please, please don't make a sequel to this movie. Just let it, let it be what it was.
1: Just have close encounters of the fourth kind, man. (laughs) And the fifth and the sixth. I'm sorry. Okay. So, okay. So
0: (laughs) a close encounter of the first kind, I think is, um, where you see uh, a alien uh, spacecraft, a close encounter of the second kind is where you actually make contact with the aliens and a close encounter of the third time is where you actually go somewhere with them. Oh. So
1: I always thought it referred to like kind as in like the kind of species or group.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's it's within the logic of the movie. It, it kind of tells you that like it's it's kind of about alien abduction a little bit. Anyway. Should we get back into it? Let's do it. So when last we met our hero, he had been granted a reprieve, um, and, and was allowed to continue to study at the university because he had accidentally stumbled onto being a prodigy for naming because the artistic, intuitive, um, non-analytical part of his brain that he had shut off, um... Because of the trauma and trying to take his life in a new direction, uh, he had made, he had kind of reawoken that through his studies of folklore and myth. And this allowed him to um, access this kind of magic. And so he's got a new academic course. He's now learning about naming and starting to learn about more of the fuzzy, wuzzy, weird, psychedelic, um, non you know, non-logical um, elements of magic and elements of the world from his naming teacher who is going to be a weirdo but not as much as just a throwaway weirdo like uh, Eloden, I think, in the in the book. Yeah. Who's just like quirky for the sake of being quirky but like, you know, th- he's that kind of like that teacher trope um, that you see in a lot of, um, you know, in a lot of fiction where they're just like, I just say wacky off-the-wall things and you're never sure if I'm sane or not. It's like, that's not... I mean, I've had some weirdo professors who might have difficulty expressing themselves or might need you to follow them on some weird, um, you know, mental gymnastics to get to a certain point. But um, if they just wasted everybody's time with like, find a brick that's as light as a feather, like they'd be fired. So um, he's going to be a little bit of a weirdo, but he's going to be focused and he's going to be a little bit more of a instructor type character. Um, So he's learning about this naming which um, he's kind of resisting a little bit because he doesn't really want to know magic. That He doesn't really feel like that's going to be helpful, especially not naming, which seems to be very loosey-goosey, not something you can just like access and use like a weapon. That's what he wants. He wants a weapon. He doesn't want some deeper understanding of the mechanics of the world. Um, and the way the dreams lead to reality, like, no, he's like, I want to shoot fire out of my hands and it's very clear I'm not going to be able to do that. So what the fuck are we doing? Um, but he also knows that I've got to keep up with, I've got to keep up with this because I need to find out how to open that mysterious door that's going to lead to some kind of magical treasure or maybe some kind of evil skeleton, something cool, um, But he is fairly good at the naming and he's starting to be able to do some interesting things and some fairly useful things. But we're never getting the impression that like, oh, he's going to be a super badass legendary, you know, Gandalf style wizard. Um, And we're going to get a sense of the sort of things that naming can do. And it's not going to be anything that's going to be terribly powerful. And that's going to help sow some seeds of doubt about, you know, when we look – Back at the framing device of so the stuff that's happening in the future, and you know, old clothes is being called up to save the world in exchange for the last piece of the puzzle that he needs. It, we're realizing, it like, well, he really doesn't have the tools to save the world. Um, he's, you know, yeah, a couple things. You know, he can pretty fake it pretty good, and he's got a couple little actual legit magic trips up up his sleeve. But eh, he's really more of a researcher than a, <laughs> a soldier. Um. So but he he begins to see as he's starting to, you know, learn more and more about this door that the key, whatever the key to opening this thing is, it just doesn't exist in our world, but it might exist in the fae, which is this weird parallel dimension of magic and fairies and weird talking trees and all this stuff that, you know, he knows a lot about it from the folklore that he knows from being a traveling performer and storyteller. And from, you know, his research, but this is another one where it's like, okay, look, you know, maybe a city was built on the ruins, of some old fortress, and maybe, you know, there's some treasure underneath it still from some vault in the fortress. Like I can get my head around that. But the idea that there is an alternate reality where like, you know, fairies and live and that normal mortals might be able to cross through to that and come back, that might be a bridge too far. But then again, I did meet like seven demons So maybe there is some truth to this, but he also knows from, from all the folklore that any human who steps into the Fae never comes back. Um, but he is starting to see that, you know, there might be a way in and he's starting to find bits of evidence that suggest that, you know, maybe when, when people disappear into the Fae, they're not just wandering off into the woods and getting eaten by a bear. (laughs) Like maybe there is something to this. Um, but he knows that he's not going to find it at the at the university. And he's also starting to get on everybody's nerves because he's asking his friends and his professors and stuff questions about like, hey, how do I get into the Fey?" <laughs> and they keep telling him, like, that's that's a that's nothing. That's a story. That's not real. Please focus on this thing that this naming thing that you're really good at. And We want you to, like, be better at because you could be a real asset to the university. And he's like, yeah, no, I want to, like, go, like, chase goblins. <laughs> um, and so he's realizing that he's not going to get anywhere, uh, at the university. Um, so, um, he's going to have to leave. He's going to have to bail on his studies cause he can't stick around for another year and deal with his naming stuff. That's kind of chafing at him and he doesn't really like it. And he wants to find the demons that murdered his family. And if that means he has to travel between worlds to do it and maybe not come back, well, then that's what he's going to have to do. So he bails on the university and he says, I'm going off into the world and I am going to find a way into the Fae so that I can find a way to unlock this door. And that's where we leave him at the end of the book. He's left the university. He's moving on to delve deeper into his world. Um, and rather than going deep underground, he's going to actually part the veil and go into the spirit world. Um, so quick preview of book two, uh, the wise man's fear. Um, he's going to, in order to find his way into the Fae and not only access it, but also once he's there, makes sense of it because I, and I, I really like the way that Quoth or not Quoth, <laughs> Freudian slip Rothfuss actually, um, mm-hmm. actually depicts the fey as this kind of like weird dream logic-y place. Um, and I think that's going to be a really great place to further develop the Quoth character who is trying to rationalize the analytical side of himself with the more intuitive, fanciful, uh, fuzzy-wuzzy side. Um, Those intuitive and spiritual skills are gonna be really necessary for him to get into the Fae, make sense of it while he's there, and actually achieve his goal of finding whatever the key to this mysterious door is. And he's also going to have to call back on his old skills. He's going to have to call back on his acting skills because the Fae, just like they are in our folklore, are all about like, ooh, tricky wicky little deals and schemes. And I tricked you with this funny little turn of language. And so he's going to have to be a really good con man to con these, you know, these weird spirit creatures into making deals with him that are actually going to work out for him rather than some monkey's paw garbage because you didn't phrase your wish exactly correct. Um, so whereas the Fae have a reputation for always tricking humans, he's going to actually have to trick them. Notice how in all this stuff about talking about the Fae, he doesn't have to like, um, fuck any sex goddesses into giving him information. I'm not going to do any of that because that's dumb and weird. Um, he's going <laughs> to, he's going to rely on the skills that he has. He already has, and he's going to have to cultivate those skills in order to, you know, accomplish his goals as opposed to just like unlocking new skills on his skill tree um, to just so that he can fill out the whole max out his character sheet. Um, But also while he's there in the Fae and he's gonna be challenged by all kinds of monsters and challenges while he's there, um, he's gonna start to see the gap between the kind of naming skills that he got at the university And the stage magic and his ability to trick people and like the real deal magic in the Fae, because that's the world that completely runs on magic. And he's going to start to see that like, wow, maybe actually there might be some value to this stuff after all. Will he find the key? Will he open the door? Will he eventually get his revenge? Yes, because that's how I want these books to go. Not the way they go in the other ones where he just bumbles around and never gets any closer to his revenge. And I also think, you know, peppered in this plot line, I feel like we should have bump-ins with not the Chandrian, but maybe their agents. Um, and, you know, some more challenges that are just personal challenges where we actually have to, like, get into some action scenes and stuff like that. But uh, I don't want to make this too action-y because I feel like if, you're, if, if your story is about myths and legends, if it's all fights, um, then your your guy has to win all of his fights. And mm-hmm. the stakes aren't there. Um, and also if I know I've got the framing device that takes place in the future of him telling the story, I know he survives everything. So if the stakes are his physical danger, then it's kind of boring. It needs to be more interesting. Like, how is he going to solve this puzzle? Like, like, you know, I've been watching the latest season of Sherlock, which is pretty good. You're never really worried that Sherlock's going to get killed. It's you're sticking around to see how he solves the puzzle and, you know, help him on the intellectual journey of solving the case. Not like, oh, I sure hope he don't get shot in this one. Um, So so that's my pitch for fixing Name of the Wind.
1: All right. Well, I have some thoughts. First, I'll say that from my perspective with these books, just to betray my hand beating of it, I enjoyed these books. I felt weirdly engaged the whole time. I really, you know, from start to finish. Eh, maybe in the second one, I started to be like, "All right, what's going on?" And I was, I'm seeing the percentage on the Kindle go up and up. And I'm looking for, you know, expected plot points to occur, and they just don't, and they just don't. That's when I really started to feel it. Uh, and I'm not really quite sure why. I can't say that I find Rothfuss particularly elegant, or uh, I don't know. I think it just it was it was an it was kind of an easy read, but in a way that I could just keep turning the next page, and it just kept happening. I mean, my I, I reached out to some friends about this who really like these books. I have a lot of friends who enjoy these greatly, just like you mentioned prior. Uh, some of this, some of my discussions were fruitful, some not. Well, back a little while when we were talking about reading Rothfuss, and everyone described it as as a cozy read. You know, cause it's, And I think part of that's because it's so mundane in some ways that it almost just feels like you're reading someone go about their day, and there's something you can connect with there. So maybe there's something to that a little bit that – would be lost in an interpretation like this. Sure. I, I don't,
0: I don't necessarily have a problem with that type of storytelling. Uh, but you can't have in the first act of your book, seven demons show up and murder your family and then be like, and now we're just going to have, you know, like, uh, a quiet analysis of day-to-day life like no, Yeah. It, it can't do both.
1: Agreed. Agreed. Uh, another friend I got in a, uh, very deep discussion about the meaning of fiction. So I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> And the one thing that my one friend said that I I didn't pick up on, and I thought about it a lot, and I'm not saying that I've read every major fantasy series out there, but I, I'm getting, I'm reading some stuff, uh, you know, here and there. And he said that one thing he really liked about it, and he he just finished reading all of Sanderson. He read a lot of Orson Scott. Car- he's you know, he's got he's getting his chops up a little bit. And he said I liked that this was a first person book. I liked having one character and a single perspective I wasn't hopping around between characters and how in his experience that is really unique in modern fantasy and from my experience too it is I can't think of a single book that only has one point of view character and I guess technically like the in the framing device you sometimes get bass perspective and it kind of has this weird like almost not set perspective or sometimes it's jumping around between chronicler and and like, I don't, I don't really, I didn't like that by the way, but I like to know who is, you know, who I'm, whose thoughts I'm getting at any given moment, if they're giving me thoughts, but, um, and I'm sure that they're out there, but I think in, in sort of the popular canon, it seems like that might be something that, that this would keep that your pitch would keep, but that as sort of one of the notes of value about the series.
0: Well, I would, I would recommend to folks if you like, um, if you're interested in another uh, tight first-person um, fantasy series, uh, the um, New Sun series by Gene Wolfe, I would recommend those. Uh, they are
1: weird. <laughs> well, that's a weird endorsement. Yeah. Uh, so I have a couple questions. <laughs> sure. Just pl- kind of plot questions, but I don't, I don't want to get into degree, but we're more like plot about the, the big picture. So. Mm-hmm. Does name so it's heavily implied? At least I am, made this inference that, like you said, Edelin, the naming professor, is a little bonkers, and so is Ari. And it was, and they have this whole mental institution basically for people who get good at naming. Does naming still make you crazy? Because it seems like that's what's going on.
0: Well, I think it's how do you define crazy? I think that it's, um, I really look at naming like because I think it's, I think Roth was actually dis- writes it fairly beautifully in some places where it just kind of comes to the surface a little bit where it's just, you know, quote, accesses some part of his brain where he talks about like, you know, he saw some leaves, you know, in the air and for a second he saw the name of the wind in the way that the leaves moved. And I was like, that's kind of poetic and I kind of get that. And I think that as somebody whose life puts him in touch with legitimate artists, legitimate artists sometimes think in a way that looks a little crazy to, you know, those of us who struggle to make art. Um and I think it's I think it's because that they're working on a on a more intuitive and um spiritual isn't the right word, but it's close level of their brain than the rest of us who work at more of an analytical and literal level. Um, so I think the idea that people who in this world might be really good at naming being super duper weirdos because, you know, they see things differently and they process information differently than, than other people. Um, I think that's more interesting than they just become like cartoon nut jobs.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. I appreciate that. Uh, next question is, what's he going to do when he gets there? Because if he's not actually good at anything, when he gets there, when he gets to the end, we're in the final climactic battle. And he gets the speech about you know what is a man and all that—a uh, <laughs> miserable pile of secrets. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> which that comes out this weekend, by the way. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> uh, if he's not good at anything,
0: mm-hmm.
1: no, he's good at wh- some things. Okay, he's good it seems like it's like tricks are going to get you through some situations, but not going to defeat the twelve angry demons.
0: Well, that's that's the question, isn't it? That's 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 kind of the the. Um, the overall tension that I would build, building up to whatever the climax of the framing device is, is you. I really want you to get there at not being sure how this is gonna play out. Um, How is he gonna get out of this one? Whereas in the books we have, we know that he's a fantastic warrior and poet and lover and magician and all those things. We're just waiting for him to decide to go be awesome. So Mm -hmm. we kind of just, we're just waiting and counting down time for when it's going to happen. Whereas I think in this version where he's not super competent and we realize that maybe the legend's bigger than the man when he gets called out of retirement and we come to the final boss battle and you're like, I genuinely don't know how this is going to (laughs) go. Like, I think that builds tension much more than like, cool. When are we going to get to the fireworks factory?
1: (laughs) Gotcha. And a related question to that is, What's this? I do You don't need to go into detail about like oh, there's this character, and that character. But in general, what does the supporting cast look like, especially as co- compared to what it is now? Because we have a lot of cardboard cutouts. Yeah. As characters we get to know a little better, and a little bit worse. I know you said you cut Denna, we cut Ari, but it, in my mind, I sort of could see through his charisma, because that's his highest stat. <laughs> yes. Uh, by far. Uh, he's like got a you know dumb stat and his strength and his con and all that kind of. But no. Um, that. Through his charisma and pageantry, he accumulates a bench of actually good people good at stuff so, that he calls upon throughout the story.
0: So I thought about this and I've, I've, I've gone back and forth a little bit. I like the idea that of him kind of building a DD and d party of like, you know, um, yeah, he's good at the bard. He's the bard class. And then, you know, he's got to have one of his friends who's like a good fighter to help him out in scraps and another friend who's a rogue and can like, you know, break into places when he needs stuff like that. So I kind of like that, but I also, I'm hesitant to want to bring in characters just for their skill sets Mm -hmm. because then they kind of don't become characters. Um, But I also really like the idea that I think there's some sadness and some truth to this fact that like he's a legend and there's going to be all these things that are attributed to him, but we're going to find out that like, oh, no, my friend did that, but nobody ever tells stories about my friend. They just assume I did it. Um, you know, that was my, you know, my friend fought those Gerblins and, um, you know, but the way the story goes, it was me. Um, I got all the credit for that, even though I, I, was, I was tied up in the corner. Um, I kind of like that idea. So I'm kind of leaning towards that's what I would do. I would, I, I would give him a D&D party of, you know, people he meets in the university and around town. Um,
1: and maybe in the Fae
0: and maybe in the Fae that kind of become his, you know, his support staff and almost, I do think it would be kind of interesting at the end, the way he gets out of this scrap and the way he saves the world is by actually calling on other people to come help.
1: That's kind of what I had in mind. Even if they're not with him, the whole story, you know, at different points, he's with them for a little bit and something happens and they form a friendship and then he goes on his way and then he kind of realizes once all the pieces fit together that he's missing some pieces and he needs to get those pieces. He's got to, he's
0: got to bring the band back
1: together because no man is an Island. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and because in, in the book, you know, the characters, side characters, I'm particularly thinking of like his, his school buddies. Like you could see hints that like, maybe at least when they first started, like, Oh, maybe he's going to be the one who's good at this and he's helpful. And like, they're just like, whatever he, he has get their help with stuff, but they're just extra bodies. They're just doing things that like, aren't particular to them. Just like, it's like the cardboard cutouts in home alone where he's just like he needs them to be distractions, <laughs> like uh, so I, I was curious about that, so my follow up question is, though so you mentioned like all these legends, if he's exposed as a fraud at university, how do the legends how do the legends promulgate?
0: Yeah, so that's why I think that like i was i didn't I wasn't sure how to get this into my outline, but some of the little you know little adventures, little you know action sequences, those can start to become part of his legend. And I also think that he's going to realize that, um, you know, just faking little things around campus is going to help him build the credibility he needs to stick around. You know, if the professor is mm-hmm. here that like, Oh, I heard Quoth made a tree appear out of nowhere on the quad yesterday. He must be up to something, you know? Uh, I think that he's going to start to learn that he needs to, you know, manipulate the legends not legends but the stories that are told about him and his reputation so his reputation at this point that he's that he's manipulating not his legend because i think it's silly that you know some freaking college kid has a legend about them already
1: <laughs> right yeah okay i get that that's my other question like at what point does he begin to embrace yeah that manipulating reputation and pull the ned stark and not really say things or even go beyond that and actually manipulate it to wizard of oz level right, right? uh a good analog. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're, just, you're, you're making the prequel to Wizard of Oz that we should have seen. Oof. Not that terrible, terrible, terrible movie. No, thank you. Uh, it was really bad. Um, so I'm only going to push back really hard on one thing, and that doesn't fit in your outline, and I think could be problematic, is I don't think you can, even if he doesn't do it well, I don't think you can cut how important music is to quote the whole time because the only thing that aroused any emotion in me, for me, that book is not like you said, the story of him breaking a string and look how amazing he is, but just how almost at a, at a manic level, how he needs music as the only connection to his family. And whenever his loop breaks, it's more heartbreaking than, you know, when his loops gets smashed that first time, it's more like a main character died. And I think that's something that is integral to, and I mean, I know we're going beyond Rossfus' vision, but I think it's inter- I think it's something that you can't. One of the promises of the book that I think we can't ignore.
0: So here's where I come down on that. One, I kind of committed to the idea that when we first meet Quoth, he is somebody who is a competent performer, but does not connect emotionally with the art that he is making. To him, he is just getting up there and reading the lines, or he is playing the notes, and he's doing a damn good job, but he's not really connecting emotionally to it. So I want the point where he starts to connect emotionally with these things. When one, he starts to reconnect with them period because he blocked that part off because of the trauma and because he didn't want people, he wanted people to take him seriously as a scholar. Um, When he reconnects with that, I want that to be an emotional climax that he's reconnecting with the act of doing it, but also he's starting to find the emotion in it. Um, I want that to be a, a, a big moment um and also I think it, uh, where I struggled to put it into my outline is because I personally didn't connect with the I didn't connect emotionally with Quoth's music story at all. Um and I think that might be because and I hate saying this, but I think that might be because as somebody who plays music, the way that Rothfuss wrote about playing music seemed very very phony to me. Now I'm not saying that he's wrong, Everybody approaches art and makes art in a different way and uh, feels different things and ways about what they're doing. But I definitely got the vibe that this is the way that somebody who doesn't play music thinks that musicians think about playing music. Um, I think that you can write a really compelling emotional piece about the act of playing music and the act of working with an instrument and the act of performing in the act of composing. I think mean, you can write about those things, but I found that Rothfuss did it in a way that really really turned me off. Um, I'm so I would rather tell a story about his connection to the various arts that he's connected to and how he finds not only practical value but also emotional and spiritual value in connecting with them. Music can be one piece of that. Um I also just think that it's probably easier to um, write a convincing narrative about acting or about stage magic than it is about the perf- musical performance. Um, I think it might be easier for people to connect to, but uh, I wouldn't say I'm getting rid of it entirely. But I'd rather I'd rather that emotional connection be a point we get to with him as something rather than something we're just told about early on, um, as some MacGuffin of oh he doesn't have a lute anymore. It's like well. Can he drum on the table or you know sing to himself? It's mm-hmm. um, no, yeah, I I that. that
1: makes sense. That makes sense. I think in the in the structure story, I could see that playing out uh, and being like you said, being a, a good climax at some point where he reconnects and makes, especially with the connection, the naming, and that sort of thing. I, I see it all, all piecing together. Okay, well, I'm in. <laughs> I think that you'd have to be a very talented author to pull it off because the creativity involved with writing making those situations like passing wizard classes through stage tricks like that would that would require some very clever and a lot of you know I mean you probably just get a stage magic like consultant like call pen <laughs> I say call a pen and teller and be like yo guys what up uh but yeah okay so there it is um I I think
0: I I rather enjoyed this exercise um,
1: I did too I really enjoyed it I think that this will make this uh a style episode moving forward where we rebuild things. Well, that's
0: good because uh, I don't mean to alarm you, but uh, I've already started work on rebuilding the Star Wars prequels.
1: But I wanted to work on rebuilding the Star Wars prequels. Maybe we can work on them together. Okay.
0: <laughs> rather, than, uh, rather than me write 20 pages. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I also think just because I, I have such, well, maybe deep isn't the right word to use, but broad knowledge of Star Wars stuff. Uh, or maybe we should... Well, that might be a little too much. If we both rebuild it and compare it, <laughs>
0: dueling, dueling, uh dueling we'll treatments have like for five-part
1: episodes of rebuilding one thing. Everyone's like, "Oh my god, I'm so, <laughs> I'm so tired of hearing about the, you know, the interesting version of Jar Jar that you ended up making." Oh no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no! I don't have <laughs> that. I love
0: that. Uh, so, I think we can now officially promise that we're not going to talk about Patrick Rothfuss for a while. I mean, I can make that promise,
1: and I can make the promise that we're not going to talk about him for a while because a we got it all over system and B there's going to be no news about him for probably years until that next book comes out. (laughs) Well, I mean that, you know, whatever happened to the TV series, I guess, which I keep forgetting is happening, but, uh,
0: um, but I think this coming, this weekend, we're both going to try to see Spider-Man and then try to talk about it next week. Try to do something special about Spider-Man. Yep. And at some point we're going to do this again with, um, with the star Wars prequels. I've also thought about, um, Suicide Squad, I thought about Batman versus Superman. I thought about some other things that might be good uh, you know, hey, let's take another swing at this. Let's uh let's rebuild it. So I guess I would say to anyone out there who's listening, if there's uh something out there that you felt like was almost good or you know, a really bad thing wrapped around a core kernel of a good idea, send it our way and, and maybe we can we can talk about how uh how it might have been a good thing.
1: Yeah, and if there's any like uh budding authors out there, uh you can change the names and maybe you'll be the next big fantasy author by taking our idea and writing it. You write a sample chapter. Hey, uh
0: it worked for Patrick Rothfuss. Find <laughs> find replace Harry with Kvoth. Oh god. That was draft 1. Oh man. I feel bad. It's, no, don't. It, I... no this was i don't want to i don't want to give the impression that i think it was a lazy idea i think it was a good idea that
1: got away from him as i think so many things so so many much media i think is what that's the case i mean very few people i think it's down and be like have a terrible garbage idea to start besides maybe like michael bay but um, wait wait
0: wait 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 wait. let's not give him credit for having ideas
1: (laughs) okay uh a vision, let's say, <laughs> um, and I think that, like, I mean, a lot of TV shows go that route. A lot of book series, I mean, a lot. Of, I mean, fantasy series have a reputation of of spiraling out into, you know, a sort of centrifugal force where you just get pulled in different directions. And what was supposed to be three books is now six books is now fourteen books. Uh, so hmm, you know, I which wonder, is
0: I wonder who you might be talking about there.
1: Uh, and I mean. I do wonder about this series, too. Like, man, you've been working on this one book, and I've heard tell that, uh, you know, Raffles has a mixed reputation as an individual hmm. online. Uh, a lot of people really like him. They ever say he's really nice, but he's also kind of gotten in some very public and nasty sparring matches online with people on, the, you know, for Twitter and with people in public and kind of said some, nothing outright, like, terrible from what I've read, but just, like, yeah, kind of sounds like an asshole. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also know that he, he posts recently about um struggling a lot with his, his mental health when writing, and like physical health when writing, because he gets so into it. Sure. And I I heard in the context of this article and how he said he's, he's kind of gotten better with himself and now he can continue writing, uh, that he had written like a large short chunk of the third book and scrapped the entire thing, which after reading these two and doing this, does not surprise me.
0: <laughs> well, all, well, it actually does surprise me because it seems like it does not seem that a single word of uh, his first draft was ever struck from what we actually read. Like, I mean, I think that's one of the big complaints is that these books seem like they weren't edited at all. Like, there's just chapters that go nowhere and plot threads that are never resolved or um, even weird inconsistencies about his age or the way certain characters are characterized. You know, it's... it's so maybe him throwing something away is a sign that maybe he's becoming a little bit more critical of his own work, which might lead to a better product
1: in the third yeah. book. I just think he for him to finish the series, I don't see how you do it in one book. I just don't with the amount of plot threat. Unless you just like steamroll into the ending real quickly somehow. But uh, I did read an interesting because I read an interesting thing. I was on the King Killer Chronicle subreddit, and um someone pointed out like someone asked a question, like, oh, like, didn't didn't he say that he read this book in school, but didn't the Chronicler say that he, the Chronicler wrote that book? What's the timeline with that? And someone had some, like, long wind, and I'm like, oh, it's just, like, no one edited this book. Like, yeah. It's it's not, like, some, someone had this, like, long wind, and, like, oh, well, the chronicler is a little older than you think, and he, he was, you know, oh, like, these little, like, turns of phrases they use and things, and, like, trying to, like, dig deep into it, and I'm like... No, this this is just a mistake.
0: This was not a carefully (laughs) edited book. Just like that little catch of, you know, how old he was when he left the Edema Roo and then spent three weeks in the, in the three months in the forest and then three years in the first city. But then he's only two years older when he gets to Imre. Like, why did no one catch this?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, too close maybe. Maybe it doesn't let, I mean, I was just reading about Sanderson's process for reading, like doing reading groups. Mm -hmm. He's got up through gamma alpha beta up through gamma sets of readers that start off with you know 10 20 people and then 50 people and then a couple hundred people who like read his books provide feedback look for all kinds of stuff you know and uh, I think that's probably a good process to go through especially for a book
0: having just finished the third mistborn book i can say that whatever he's doing is working <laughs>
1: maybe we'll talk about that too sometime yeah
0: well, all right, buddy. Uh, I hope you have a good week. I hope you get a chance to see Spider-Man this weekend. I hope I get a chance to see Spider-Man this weekend. And uh, I'll see you next week.
1: Enjoy the slinging
0: of webs. I my best.